That will be our sermon text for this morning, Genesis 23. Uh, We've been working through Genesis for some time now. We've been in the Abraham story. We're nearing the end of that portion of the book. Before we read Genesis 23, let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to come to you and to hear from you and to sit at your feet and uh, learn from you, from your word. We pray, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. We pray that you you would pour out your Spirit so that my words would be true and right and good. Uh, We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit so that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand and hearts to receive all that you have for us in the Scriptures. We pray, Father, that you would come and that you would draw near to us and that you would draw us near to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place." Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Not everyone deals with death in the same way. For some of us, this is a 
hypothetical question. For others, it is a present reality. Some choose not, just not to think of it. Uh, if you are one of those, I am sorry that you're here this morning. Uh, this may get uncomfortable, but hopefully in God's providence, it will be beneficial. Others do everything they can to prepare. Uh, some figure death is inevitable. Just make the most out of the time you've got. Others hyper-focus on what comes next, saying it doesn't really matter what you do in the present as long as we are ready for the future. As with many things, our tendency is to run to extremes ourselves and exaggerate or caricature the positions of others. Shall we ignore death and focus on the present or ignore the present and focus on what comes next? Of course, the answer is neither, but nor is it simply both and. Think about this statement. The way we express our hope in the face of death is by investing in this present life. The question I want you to be thinking about this morning is how can you invest in the present in order to bear witness to your faith in things to come? The way we express our hope in the face of death is by investing in the present life. We are going to be talking quite a bit about death this morning. Uh, in our text, Sarah dies, and Abraham purchase, purchases a burial plot for her. Uh, that's the story of the chapter. And as we think together about facing death, we will see three specific things to do, three ways to respond. The first is mourn over the brokenness of this age. Second, live in the tension of God's promises. And third, hope in the face of death by investing in this present life. So first, mourn over the brokenness of this age. How do you face death? I know some of you might be squirming a bit, and I'm sorry for that, but sometimes these things come up, and it's good for us to, to talk about them. When you come to the hard things of life, how do you respond? Whether thinking about literal death the death of a loved one, or your own time, whenever it will be, or all the little ways that we die daily, all the ways we experience the slow decay of life, death in our relationships, decay in our bodies, the disintegration of society, our alienation from God. What do you do with that? Sometimes things are too hard to admit. We busy ourselves or distract ourselves or indulge ourselves, anything to not have to think about the pain, but it doesn't go away. Sometimes we simply get depressed. We enter into a long, dark sadness that, again, doesn't seem to go away. I think, biblically, the most fundamental thing to say about the way to face death is really simple. It's that it is okay to be sad. I know it seems simplistic, but it's important. The way to face death is to allow yourself to experience sadness. Look at the first two verses of our text. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arbor, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah died. She's the only woman in the Bible whose age is given at her death. She's important. 
the mother of the faithful. Peter says to Christian women in his day that they are Sarah's children. But Sarah died. She was 127 years old, which means Isaac, her son, her only son, was about 37. And she lived long enough to see him become a man. But then Sarah died. And Abraham went in into her tent to mourn and to weep. Uh, the, the writer doesn't expand on that point. He just notes it. It's not his focus. He'll, he'll go on in the rest of the chapter. But we should at least pause here for a moment. Do you allow yourself to mourn, to lament, to weep, to cry, to be sad? Scripture is full of lamentation, the tearing of garments, dust and ash upon the head, weeping in God's presence. Now, some think as Christians that we shouldn't weep, right? Christ has come. The resurrection has happened. We should be happy all the time. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, that's a, a euphemism for those who have died, perhaps with a, a hint of the resurrection and the idea that if they are asleep, they will awaken. But Paul goes on, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, some want to put a period where there is none. Some want to read, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve. But that's not what Paul said. It's not that he doesn't want us to grieve. It's that he doesn't want us to grieve in the wrong way that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We grieve, by all means grieve, but grieve with hope. Which brings up the question that, what does that even mean? And Jesus grieved. Uh, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, famously. Jesus grieved even though he knew he was about to raise his friend from the dead. He knew it was temporary. And yet he grieved. Death is sad no matter what the circumstances. And you should feel free to grieve. Now there may be medical reasons that contribute to depression. And I don't want to deny or ignore that. But physical problems are not the only reason one might be depressed. And as strange as this might sound, I believe one of the reasons people get depressed is that they don't allow themselves to be sad. The only way to deal with sadness is to, to name it and to feel it. And when we don't do that, it just sits there in our souls. It turns into depression or bitterness or recklessness because we're unwilling to simply face the sadness. Mourn the brokenness of this age. Now you might wonder, well, how can I do that? It seems so overwhelming. I'm afraid I'll get swallowed up in the grief. There are resources available in the gospel to mourn over the brokenness of this present age. So keep listening. First, mourn over the brokenness of this age. Second, live in the tension of God's promises. Sometimes Christians wonder, if God has promised me joy, where is it? If God has promised victory and salvation, why do I feel this way? It seems as if the promises of God have, have failed. I experience sadness, loneliness, heartbreak, Sickness, disease, poverty, joblessness. I get picked on at school or shunned by my coworkers or overlooked by my boss. How am I to think about these things? And the answer is live in the tension of God's promises. Abraham uh, did not stay in his tent. 
He mourns and weeps for Sarah, and then he gets up and goes. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I want you to notice a tension here. A tension that may not be obvious on the surface. Uh, Back in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to leave Ur and go to a place that he would show him. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation and make his name great. And God promised Abraham a land, the promised land. In Genesis 13, God uh, said it like this to Abraham. He said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, where Sarah died. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God promised to give Abraham the land. Do you see the tension then with chapter 23? The one who will inherit the land must beg for a place to bury his dead. Big promises as yet unfulfilled. Notice how Abraham identifies himself in verse 4. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Abraham had lived among the Canaanites for over 50 years at this point. He was happy to live among them. He was happy to engage in commerce with them. In Genesis 13, we saw he was happy to, to fight alongside them in defense of those in need. But he still isn't one of them. He is a stranger and a foreigner. He doesn't identify with them. He won't allow his son to intermarry with them in the very next chapter. Lines were drawn. Abraham lives with a a certain tension. He is in the world, but not of it. He in the land of Canaan, among the Canaanites, alongside the Canaanites, but not a Canaanite. He is in the land of promise, but it is not yet his possession. One uh, Jewish commentator, Robert Alter, says, Abraham announces his vulnerable legal status as a foreigner, a hard fact of institutional reality that stands in ironic tension with his inward consciousness that the whole land has been promised to him and his seed. The one who will inherit the land must beg for a place to bury his dead. And do you feel this tension? Not just in the story, but in your own life. We are aliens and strangers on earth. The New Testament says so. This world is not our home. And yet it will be when Christ returns and makes all things new. And we will dwell on the earth and in the land forever. But for now, together with Abraham, we are looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. The writer of Hebrews says of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
This world is not your home. If you are wondering why things don't quite feel right, there's a simple reason. You're not home yet. You might think, but, but Christ is common. Christ has risen. Death has been conquered. The power of sin is overcome. Yes and amen. And Christ has poured out his spirit on the church. If anyone is in Christ, he has a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, you are genuinely new, but not perfectly new. Not yet. Christ has come. Death is defeated. Jesus is reigning in heaven. All things are being put under his feet, but they are not yet fully under his feet. And we live in a tension between what Christ has already done and what is not yet complete. Abraham lived in the land, but he did not possess it. We live, as one author put it, in the gap between promise and reality. Christ has risen and we are raised with him spiritually and truly. We are in Christ at the Father's right hand, Scripture says. But we also still live in the present broken world. Christ has been raised, but we have not been. Not physically. Not yet, anyway. That is yet our hope. We live in the hope of the resurrection. And so mourn over the brokenness of this age and live in the tension of God's promises. They're fulfilled in Christ, but being fulfilled for us in Christ. And third, hope in the face of death by investing in the present life. Verses uh, three through 17 are uh, a fascinating look into ancient Near Eastern culture, right? Abraham enters into legal negotiations with the Hittites about a piece of real estate. He begins humbly, but, but makes his desire clear. He calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner, which is actually admitting he has no legal right to purchase property. Abraham is the, the illegal immigrant of his day. His, his rights are limited. He can be easily taken advantage of. And he makes a bold ask, give me property among you for a burying place. He wants to purchase a piece of property. Clear enough. But their response is not as clear. Uh, first, they praise Abraham in verse 6. You are a prince of God among us. Perhaps like Abimelech in chapter 21, they could see that God was blessing Abraham. The Lord was with him. They are friendly, congenial, but they don't offer for Abraham to buy a piece of property. Uh, they offer him a tomb in verse 6. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb. And do you see what they are saying? They're saying, go ahead and bury your dead. And do you notice this repeated emphasis on Abraham's dead? Go ahead and bury your dead wherever you want. You can choose your tomb. You can pick the sunniest spot in the graveyard, whatever you'd like. But there's a subtext. The subtext is, we don't want you to buy land here. They don't want Abraham to be legitimized. He's not a landowner, and they would like him to stay that way. Right? They're friendly, but they hold all the cards. They are the landowners, and they'd like to keep it that way. Notice Abraham's response. He rises and bows respectfully to the Hittites, the people of the land. Notice again the emphasis. They are the people of the land. Abraham is a stranger and foreigner. And though perhaps it goes even further, one commentator said people of the land is a technical term for the assembly of the men who are responsible for a region's political activity or for the upper class with the rights of citizenship that is, fully enfranchised landowning citizens. Which is to say, there is a class distinction being drawn here between Abraham and his rights, or lack thereof, as a non-landowning foreigner, and those with whom he is speaking. 
Nevertheless, he rises and bows and says in verses eight and nine, if you are willing that I will bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. See, they didn't say no, and so Abraham just kind of pushes forward. Let this person, this particular person, sell me his cave. Just a cave, that's all Abraham wanted, a cave in which to bury his dead. Perhaps, as one commentator put it, Abraham thought while the group might resent Abraham as an intruder, the owner of the cave might welcome Abraham as a customer. So Abraham is being wise here, wise as a serpent, as Jesus would put it. And Ephron is there, of course, sitting in the gate of the city, and he answers Abraham in verse 11 and says, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. It's unclear if Ephron is simply engaged in the back and forth of haggling in that culture, knowing that Abraham will take the next step, uh, or if Ephron wants to give it to Abraham so that Abraham still doesn't legally own it. Uh, commentators all seem unsure as to what he's doing. But if he is just engaging in the back and forth of ancient Hittite negotiations, notice what he did. I give you the field and the cave. He's saying to Abraham, I'll sell you the cave, but you have to buy the field as well. Uh, and of course, that's going to cost him. Abraham bows down again and says to Ephron, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me. He's insistent, I want to pay for this. I want it to be legally mine. And Ephron responds, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Uh, he's naming his price, but he's using the convention of the day. 400 shekels, what's that between friends? Abraham listened to Ephron, he gets the hint, he knows what he's saying, he weighs out the silver and purchases the land. And verses 17 to 18 essentially say that the deed transfers hands, and it lists the, the real estate and personal property that goes along with it, the field, the cave, and all the trees. Having gone through this elaborate legal negotiation and having secured legal right to the land in the presence of the men gathered at the gate who acted as a kind of court or even a notary public, Abraham then buries Sarah, his wife, in the cave at Machpelah. What do we do with this? Uh, here's what we need to see through this elaborate legal negotiation. It's kind of an odd thought, but it's important. It mattered where Sarah was buried. Why? Why did it matter where Sarah was buried? Why not accept the free tomb? Why insist on purchasing property? It doesn't matter where Sarah is buried if she simply decays and that's the end of the story. It only matters if God is going to fulfill his promises and give them the land. Abraham could have just accepted a tomb, but he wanted property for a burying place. There is this dogged determination to cling to the promises of God even in the face of death. The purchase of the field by Abraham is an act of faith. It was a stake in the ground for the promises. It was a memorial, a way of saying, I believe there is more to come. And so this is important. Abraham's action bore witness to his faith. You see, one way of looking at Abraham's action, I think a wrong way, would be to say Abraham so needed a little piece of the land to feel good about himself, he needed to be able to say, see, God's promises come true. I've at least gotten this little field here. But that would be the wrong way of looking at it. It wasn't a poor substitute for the promise, but a foretaste of it. The purchase of the field by Abraham is an act of faith. God would fulfill his promises. God would give Abraham the land. Abraham believes God's promise of the land even in the face of Sarah's death. And so he invests in the land now 
in the hope of fulfillment in the future. Now, uh, some of you may know Jeremiah uh, did something similar. In uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, God has Jeremiah purchase a piece of land near Jerusalem, a piece of land which likely at that moment was being occupied by the Babylonian army. God told Jeremiah that the Babylonians were going to conquer the land and take the people into exile. And so Jeremiah asks God, what in the world did you have me do that for? What sense does it make to purchase property occupied by an enemy force, especially when you told me they're going to win? God essentially says this, yes, Babylon will win this round. They will take over the land, but I'm going to take it back. They will take the people of Judah into exile, but I'm going to bring them back. The land is worthless now. But there will come a day when land will be sold in Israel once more. And so Jeremiah buys the land not in light of what is, but in hope of what will be. Abraham buys the field in faith to say that death does not have the final word. The promises of God will come through. Jeremiah buys a field in faith to say exile will not have the final word. The promises of God will come through. If you think about it, everything Jesus did in his life was in the same vein of faith, that death would not have the final word. And think about it. Jesus had no place, he says, to lay his head. He had no inheritance in the land. He was homeless in the present, a pilgrim and stranger like Abraham. Yet prior to his death, Jesus gathers disciples, trains them, encourages them, prepares them. Given that Jesus knew he would die on the cross... His whole earthly ministry was undertaken in the hope of the resurrection. Why gather disciples, train them, heal the sick, raise the dead, if death is the end? Jesus did ministry in the hope of the resurrection. If his death had been the end, his ministry would have been in vain. But Jesus dies in faith. He says to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And through death... Jesus purchased our eternal inheritance, the heavenly promised land, the new creation, which he himself enters when he rises from the dead. See, Jesus has entered into our inheritance, which is now stored in heaven for us, waiting for his return when we too will enter in. So what does all that mean then for us? Well, for one, as we face death, whether literal death or the little deaths we die every day, the decay of this life, the broken relationships, the physical disabilities, the pain and suffering, we can do so in hope. Jesus promises to those who trust in him that as he rose from the dead, so we will rise with him on the last day. Jesus says at one point in John chapter 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and... In addition to eternal life, I will raise him up on the last day. This is our hope in the face of death. Death does not have the final word. However bad things get, this is not the end. But there is more that we can say. Uh, Like Abraham and Jeremiah and Jesus, we can hope in the face of death by investing in the present. And here's what this means. What we do in the present matters. It doesn't matter if what we do will last for centuries. We actually still know where the cave that Abraham purchased is or whether the Babylonians are about to occupy the land. What we do matters. And it matters because of the resurrection. 
Many of you know that one of my favorite verses, and I, I know I have a lot of them, uh, but one of them is 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where at the end of a long chapter explaining the future resurrection of our bodies, Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why is our labor not in vain? Because God's promises are sure, and we will rise from the dead on the last day. If we died and went into the grave and became worm food, and that was it, and if that is true of every person who ever lived, what we do wouldn't really matter. Nothing would really matter. But the resurrection, that changes things. Eternity brings weight to every moment. Because of the resurrection, you can hope in the face of death by investing in the present. And what I mean by that is investing in the present despite the fact that what you do may or may not last in the moment until next week, much less next year or next century. Investing in the present despite the fact that fact is an act of hope, an act of faith in the resurrection which brings weight and value and meaning to this moment. Now, by investing in the present, I don't mean get everything you can out of life while it lasts. I mean work toward God's final end of new creation, of glory to God, of true worship, of, of lives lived for Jesus, of righteousness and justice and peace on the earth. Work towards God's future end in the present. Now, you can't bring God's future end. You can't build God's kingdom in the present. What you do may last or it may be destroyed by the Babylonians next week. We don't know, but we invest in the present because of our hope in the resurrection. We don't face life cynical and passive, but hopeful and active. God is going to make all things new. How can I invest in the present in a way that manifests God's promised future now? The question for each one of us then is this, what can you do this week even to bear witness to your faith in the resurrection? What can what good can you do that matters, knowing that whatever happens, it is not in vain because of the resurrection? Like Abraham, we are pilgrims and strangers on earth. We are immigrants and aliens in the present age. This world is not our home. But Jesus has risen from the dead. He entered into a new age, a new existence, a new creation by his resurrection. And our hope is that as Jesus rose, so we will rise on the last day, which means this world, this present age, is not the end. And so mourn, mourn over the brokenness of this age, live in the tension of God's promises and hope in the face of death by investing in the present because Christ has risen from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus and we don't fully understand all that that means, but we pray that we would live now in light of that hope we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.